of these novels over the, for the Fuller from ten years. Uh, one was published, you know, Confessions of a Crap Artist. Yeah, that, uh, I always thought that was the best one, so when that was published, uh, I, I didn't feel so bad. Uh, that, that took the sting out of it, but it did take, as Paul Williams said, took 19 years to publish it. Hey, dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from the entire West Coast to your brain hole. This is your scientific account of proven facts for this month. We have a special guest joining us today, and we're going to start by introducing him, Jason Sachs came to my attention because he's uh, reviewing Philip K. Dick books for the Galactic Journey uh, website, which is a Hugo-nominated website that does, they're basically tracking, was it 55 years, Jason? They're um, Exactly, they, yeah. Yeah, track 55 years ago, whatever was happening in science fiction. And so whenever they get to a release date of a Philip K. Dick book, Jason is the guy who reviews it. So he is Galactic Journey's PKD guy. And so we have him here to join us on Confessions of a Crap Artist. Do you want to give people a little bit of background on how you got uh, into PKD? Sure. Yeah. I uh, actually became a fan of PKD after Blade Runner came out. Like many people, my first exposure to Dick was uh, Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep. And I was uh, like blown away by that book. It's still my favorite PKD book. Baristas are actually different from the ones you described in your episode. Uh, which actually we will get to a bit here. Uh, okay. And um, since then, I've read most of his works. I seem to have a blind spot around his uh, early 50s work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've also read like about half of the the mundane books that, he's, that he wrote. So that's also been an interesting journey for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, well, we'll later on talk about why you should read the 50s books, because we really firmly believe in that. But uh your uh, regular dickheads are here um starting with me i'm uh david agronoff i am co-host of this podcast i'm also the author of goddamn killing machines punk rock ghost story and you can find a lot of my non-fiction book reviews on my blog and i also do a podcast called postcards from a dying world anthony tell the folks who you are yeah, so hi, I'm Anthony Trevino. I am the co-author of the recently released Hissers 3, written with Ryan C. Thomas. Um, oh, David's throwing it up there right now. Yep, look at that. Um, I'm also a, pretty much a lazy film and literary critic. I write comics, short stories, and, I mean, if you Google my name, I think I'm the only Anthony Trevino out there that does weird fiction at the moment. So I've cornered that market, the market of my own name. Boom. All right, now... I don't know if we can contain this introduction. I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. All right, then. So we're moving on to the PKD news, starting with he's still dead. So, yeah. We Get, do that, have out a, of the way. Get that out of the way right away that we hasn't come back to life. We do have a PKD robot. So there is that. Robot. Um, robot. We do have the robot. But there is one piece of Philip K. Dick adjacent news. Um, and we mentioned it in our last episode, uh, in the Flow My Tears episode, that it was coming. But the ninth annual Philip K. Dick Science Fiction Film Festival announced its winners. Um, I'm not going to go through all the prizes because there's lots of like very small, weird prizes. Um, but uh, Dan and the guys gave away the awards. 
and Noah Mucci, I believe, uh, Luna Manser awarded, uh, or his movie Luna Manser was awarded the top prize for best uh, PKD style feature. Um, the Unhealer was named the best supernatural feature. And then um, there was a graphic novel called Monitor by Damien Wampler that took home the first ever graphic novel prize for the PKD award. If you want to hear about all the other winners and track down those films, but the, uh, a lot of those I'll, I'll have the link to all the winners in the show notes. So there just you go. roll down a little and you can see all those show notes and all that stuff. Um, so uh, on that note, um, we're going to talk about a little ditty called Confessions of a Crap Artist. We're getting right to it. Um, this book was written in 1959, uh, but it didn't re get released until 1975. David, what uh, the hell is happening in 1975? Well, it's, it's good that you ask what was happening in 1975 when this book was released. The Vietnam War ended that year so a lot of books came out while that war was going on uh from pkd the apollo and soyuz spacecraft linked up for the first time on july 15th of 1975 and uh margaret thatcher was the first woman elected as the head of the conservative party in in britain and inspired a lot of really good punk rock so <laughs> we have Margaret Thatcher to thank for the good punk rock and not the other stuff. Um, <laughs> a great but, spin to put on her career. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I want to point out some things that happened in 1959 because if you look at the amount of time that happened between when this book was written and when it was published. So 1959 was when Alaska was admitted as a state. Hawaii became the 50th state that year. But I think most uh, important for looking at this book is that the Mercury 7 was announced in 1959. So when this book was written, they were just announcing the astronauts were going to be going into space. And by the time it was written, they were linking up with Soviet spacecraft in orbit. Um, but does anyone have anything else they want to say about 1975? I was a year old, so um, I don't think any of us remember 1975. I was currently unbirthed at the time, so no. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> currently unbirthed. <laughs> uh, great way so, to put it. Love it. <laughs> so let's get into the uh, actual discussion of this book, The Writing and Publication History. This was written in mid-1959. Um, in a time of great upheaval for one Philip K. Dick, um, we will be... Well, that doesn't show at all in this novel. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to yeah. ask you, David, like, when is there not a time of great upheaval in Dick's personal life? <laughs> at, at, at this point, and we've read so many of these books, 19, I think it was just a constant state. On, he was golden. Everything was fine for him. <laughs> well, Larry... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Um, yeah. I would say that early and years were pretty nice for him like he does have the, like those small periods where he's happy in a marriage like yeah that, that's, that's about for, it for a month or two maybe yeah right. yeah 
And then, no, and then no, when, no, he, no, when no. he's over it, it shows up in the books. Yeah. You had a couple years there with Anne, I think, that 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 were pretty idyllic. Okay. Idyllic. Um, but this was written after Dr. White Savior, Dr. Futurity. Um, and so the last book he wrote before he wrote this was Dr. Futurity. Wow. Uh, the fix-up of Time Pond. That be that um that and then the next thing he wrote awful, was, awful book. Yeah was the the man whose teeth were exactly alike which i believe is a short story no it's a full a novel. novel oh yeah. okay uh actually very similar to this and huh. uh pretty amazing okay uh, uh, yeah, this there book there is yet. pretty amazing all right okay. I, so, i'm kind of looking forward to all the straight books or uh yeah the Monday. yeah they're called literary and we can get into this later. Voices from the Street, his first book, and Gather Yourselves Together are kind of literary feeling, but then they get to more mundane. Like, I, I wouldn't call this book a literary book. No. Well, I don't know. I've read a lot. I of think Philip Dick Roth. would, but I agree with you. <laughs> I've read a lot of Philip Roth, and it has a lot of uh, similarities to the stuff he does. Oh, that's that's quite an interesting comparison. So, um, listen, we're going to have to consult Divorcepedia here quite a bit for this book. And Let me bring it up. Um, so I know specifically that the marriage to Cleo, um, wife number two, uh, was June 14th, 1950 to 1959, coincidentally, uh, because... Um, it was April 1st, 1959, when uh, Anne and Philip K. Dick uh, went to Ensenada, just south of us, and got married on April Fool's Day. It's a so, great spot, by the way, Ensenada. Great place to go. Yeah, so they got married just south of us here in Ensenada on uh, April Fool's Day, which means that he was in the honeymoon period when he... <laughs> wrote this, you know, wow. not so flattering <laughs> uh, novel about his new wife. And so here's the thing that I think Dr. Futurity had just been mailed off or just sent off to, to Ace. And I think that that's going to the the whole science fiction writer versus crap artist thing is definitely something we're going to talk about a lot when we get into um what's going on in this book um anthony did you find the notes you did okay because we got a quote coming up here very soon about the influences um now he he specifically pointed to you know now you mentioned philip roth um larry but the influence that he did mention is nathaniel west so anthony can you give us this quote hmm. Sure. PKD said, I was very, very, very influenced by Nathaniel West for a while and my idea of the American novel. Now we're getting away from the idea of the European novel, the French and Russian and Japanese novel and into an idiomatic American novel with Nathaniel West. Has anyone here read Nathaniel West? Uh, the name sounds familiar, but I don't I don't know any specific work. OK, his two most famous books are Day of the Locust and Miss Lonely Hearts. And if either of those books have any similar i don't really see the similarity um i believe day of the locust if my memory serves i i have read nathaniel west before i think i read for college um and and i do his work 
I believe Day of the Locust is about a screenwriter who moves out to L.A. and has all these like experiences. Yeah, I, I, I think I know that one. Yeah, but Miss Lonely Hearts, I believe, is the one that is has somewhat similarity, but I really don't know if I see it. And basically, I'm just going on memory of some of something that I read a long time ago, so I could be totally wrong. And right. you know, feel free to send us your hate mail. Yeah, uh, right. If you're a huge Nathaniel West stan, go, and, go ahead like, and add us on this one because we are we know we're totally ignorant. Yeah, I. I can honestly i know i read day of the locust at some point but i but it was a very long time ago so anyways uh, now here's an interesting factoid uh that when the smla agency got a hold of this book they did not send it out under the name philip k dick they sent it out under the name jack isidore um and they tried uh submitting it to a couple different publishers, including an editor, Don Wickenden, who was an editor at Harcourt. And he turned down Crap Artist with a letter that was received to the agency in October of 1959. So the book was done early enough in 1959 that it was already getting shit canned by a publisher and by the end of October. So, and it's pretty hilarious, this quote that Wickenden has uh, where he rejected it. Um, Anthony, do you want to read that quote? So Wickenden said, how many pages of confessions of a crap artist had I read before I began to suspect that the actual author was Philip K. Dick? Five, perhaps. By the time I'd read 10, I was sure. So um, he, he knew, even though it had the name Jack Isidore on it, I mean, first of all, it came from SMLA, so you know, maybe that's part of it too. But uh, what do you think tipped him off uh, is, is the interesting thing to think about. Um, well, that, that horrifying first chapter was easily recognizable as Philip K. Dick, I think. Okay. Like, everything in that chapter is wrong and shouldn't be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm interested, Jason, what do you think? Of the first chapter, or does or, it sound like? Or what Philip tipped K. Dick? them off? What tipped them off? Yeah, I think what tipped them off as much as anything is this kind of very particular writing style Dick has, where he seems to get inside the heads of his characters and reveals them in this very kind of psychologically distorted way. Maybe not a psychological. Actually, no, the opposite. Maybe it reveals their weirdnesses yeah, in a very specific yeah. kind of clear way. Because, uh, you know, Jack... In a in very the first unflattering chapter, way, though, right? Yeah. Always unflattering. Well, he, he seems transparently screwed up. <laughs> yeah. And screwed up in a really fundamental way. Yeah. With all the chatter about his science fiction magazines, his rock collection, and also everything chopping else. chopping the heads off of people, and racism, and all those all those things. He, ma- he makes himself a character sound just despicable in the first mm-hmm. chapter. And not just, well, it's funny because he kind of split his personality between the brother and, 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 uh, and, and so I, there I was, think there's, there's PKD in all characters in this, but I, I would agree with that. I think there's PKD's Charlie, he's Nat, and he's what, Jack? I'm, I just finished the book last night and I'm already starting to forget it. So. I just finished it this morning, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's all the main characters in my yeah. I think he's all the main male characters, at least. And, no, and the and the female. You think so? Okay. 
you see you see him in Faye? I do see him in Faye. Well, well, he very specifically um, talks about Faye being Anne um, and part of, you know, but we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, I personally think it was the um, asshole characters and let's face it. There's a PKDism on page nine or page six. There's a fucking tire regroover. There's a tire regroover. Uh, yeah. You might as well have had a con app in there. And but, he, uh, but he hadn't published the, um, which one, which one has the tire regroover? Uh, Frolics eight, I think. Is, no. Um, yeah. It might be Frolics eight. Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> after it was yeah, after, it was definitely after, but yeah, this, this came out. That's true. So, but I mean, he wrote it before, but it, uh, I don't know. I don't know, but I do think that there's a lot of like the way that the characters are written definitely. Um, uh, Phil doesn't care about making his characters likable at all, really. And I think that that came off probably. I think that's part of it. But um, I also think the combination of it coming from SMLA too. I mean, obviously the editor is going to know from the return address that it's at least one of their clients. So they, you know, if he starts to see Dickisms and then sees the address, I think that's that's probably it. Um, because in that era, that's going to have that that kind of feel to it. Okay, yeah. another publisher, a big one, Kanoff, um, almost bought the novel in 1960, but they did ask for a rewrite. Uh, but Phil said that he couldn't do it. That um, so there's a degree that I kind of don't feel sorry for him that he couldn't get a publish because he was just asked for a rewrite, but he, um, he told Anne that it wasn't that he didn't want to, it's that he wasn't able to. And what he basically explained was that this was a moment. This was a feeling that he had, that he was writing in the glow of the new marriage and that he couldn't get that vibe back. Uh, or he didn't think that he could, um, which, is a little, I don't know. And, and keep in mind that one of the notes too, now when you, when you hear that, keep in mind that one of the notes from Kanoff was that they wanted the main female character to be more sympathetic. What? David, it's it's Knopf. Just it's, FYI. Oh, okay. But before they come for you in the comments, I'm just saving Knopf. you now. Knopf? Knopf. Knopf. Yeah. Knopf. Okay, so... Um, so they did ask um, villain of the story. Yeah, they wanted the female character okay. to be more sympathetic, and Phil said he couldn't. So here's the thing: so either you're in the glow of your new honeymoon, right, or you can't find a way to make the woman who you married into a character sympathetic. It's a very strange thing, um, and I think that it says a lot about. Philip K. Dick and his relationships and the weirdness <laughs> yeah, <it does. laughs> of his relationships. And um, now and there was another press that turned it down. Grove Press um, turned it down because there was no sex in it. Uh, <laughs> and yes, there's 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 not- hints at sex in it. Come on. They do have sex. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> Uh, we, know, we know they had sex at least five times because she says so. It's five times. Exactly five times. But 
Yeah. Sex was um, never his strong point as a writer, though. No, yeah. not at all. So when it did come out, um, it came out from um, a small press. And, of course, it was sold on the reputation that he had as a science fiction writer. He was coming off two award nominations for Flow My Tears. Got now, it. one thing that's really interesting about this book that I want to bring up is the fact that we're now two books in a row on this podcast that have been dedicated to Tessa. Well, that makes sense. They were published when he was married to her. But it's really interesting to take the book that's basically about Anne and their marriage and dedicate it to two wives later, um, you know, uh, when, when it came out. And I just think that that's really kind of funny and interesting that um, that this book is dedicated to Tessa um, in that regard. Do, do you guys think that that's a little weird? I think it's, a, especially since it was, I mean, it's not like he's, Gonna it would be weird for a normal person, but for PKD, it's not it's not weird at all. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. The but dedication I, is to Tessa, the dark-haired girl who cared about me when it mattered most. That is all the time. This is to her with love. And I kind of read that as him saying, you helped me get through this time of darkness in my life. Or at least I look back on this time as a contrast to the happy relatively happy life i have now this was the the events of this book and this world that he's talking about is a good 12 years before he would even meet tessa so mm-hmm. you know it's, it's just interesting yeah but that explanation makes sense that she's sort of the antithesis of this book and that's it's, and that's why it's dedicated to her because she's made him a better person Anthony, can you read to me the next PKD quote? PKD said, Confession of a Crap Artist was one of them, but that came in 1959. That was later. That came before Man in the High Castle. That's really the bridge between my Ace Double science fiction type of writing and Man in the High Castle. Actually, if you read what I wrote for Ace prior to Putnam's buying Man in the High Castle, you cannot account for Man in the High Castle. It doesn't seem to come out of Ace books, but if you read Confessions of a Crap Artist and date it as 1959 and 1961 for Man in the High Castle, you can bridge the gap between the two. All right, Jason, what do you think about this bridge that he's talking about? Um, Yeah, there is like a real gap, not just in page count, but also in terms of style between uh, some of the earlier books and Man in the High Castle, just in terms of the cohesiveness and the way the books kind of fall together. And uh, one thing, uh, uh, Crap Artist is a challenging book, but it certainly holds together as this larger kind of work that has resonances from beginning to end. Um, it's not, uh, so some of the earlier books, and I love the earlier books, have a little bit of an element of this is something that happens another thing, and then another thing happens as opposed to kind of a more kind of literary approach to things and having uh, deeper resonances back and forth in the book. Yeah, I think... Uh, I think a big part of it is that he he had finally sort of mastered with this book, sort of mastered the multiple narrative, which he had never which he had never really gotten before. And, and that's a big change because that's sort of what made uh, Man, Man in the High Castle so interesting was all the different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Well, Man in the High Castle is the first one where I really feel like the multiple point of views was really seamless that there was a rhythm still clumsy but it still is much more on that track that's why it's a precursor sort of 
Yeah. Uh, this man in the high castle is the first one where I thought there was a rhythm to it. Like one of the things, like when, when, when I write, um, when I'm working on multiple point of views, I try to make sure there's a rhythm where we come back to certain characters at a certain, you know, like, Oh, we've had three chapters with this character. We have four chapters with this character or, or whatever. Not, not everybody needs that ordered mind, David. <laughs> I know. But what I'm saying is, is man in the high castle is the first one where I felt that, there was an order to, to how that, that went. Um, but, it's like symmetry. It's not necessary for art. Yeah. I understand that. But what I'm saying is, is for me, I, I think once you have a little bit of structure and you're able to do that, um, the, I, in a lot of ways, to me, the books, they have a greater rhythm. So that's why I, I think it works. But well, I think it works in this book too, flipping between the different characters in the different chapters, because you could get a rhythm for it. I found myself at certain times anticipating a reaction to something I had just read. And so the, the book kind of had this really nice kind of resonance as it went along where there's kind of different sides of the mirror, so to speak. Yeah. All right. And um, so the next quote that I have is, is just directly out of divine invasions, um, which is talking about the end of this era of him trying to become a mainstream writer. And he tried to fuse those things with a couple of the novels with man in the high castle with Martian time slip, a couple of those. And so, and do you want to read that quote from divine invasions, Anthony just says D I there. This dream had virtually died by January, 1963 when the Scott Meredith literary agency returned all of Phil's unsold mainstream novels and one big package that was dumped on his doorstep. These rejections, coupled with the ray of hope of the Yugo for Man in the High Castle, made it official. After seven years, Phil's mainstream breakthrough effort was formally at an end. Ouch. So uh, he, he just won the Hugo, and then they, they were like, here's all your mainstream novels back. They ain't selling. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it's okay. I looked it up. There is a total of 2,865 manuscript pages um, that were returned to him in that package. So it's a big package. That's a lot of pages of attempts at trying to be a mainstream literary publisher. And um, I think, you know, we it's all it's well documented that it was very hard for Phil to accept that. But it was the early 60s where he kind of did that. And I think he's processing a lot of that on the page here in Confessions. I think he knew it was coming. And the whole scene where, and we'll get to it later, where Anne's like, well, you could get, or not Anne, Faye. Faye says, you can give up your, your studies, right, and become a real estate guy. And we know that that was happening with the jewelry business that he was working on when he started writing Man in the High Castle to avoid. But not this. But not this one. No, no. This was but before that. It was prophetic in that sense that yeah. he would end up in that position. Or maybe she had mentioned it when they got married or before they got married, that he could do that instead and he put it in the book. Yeah, I think that was already that, that conversation was already happening because and what had happened is Anne, what was going on in Anne's life is that Anne was a widow. Um, it's different from the book a little bit, but her husband had already died. Right. And she had this nice farmhouse 
that you read about in the book. And she had this idyllic life. And Phil and Chloe had moved out to Point Reyes Station, and they had both made friends with Anne. And this the saucer group thing is a little bit of reality from that. It's kind of like, and then Phil and Anne started having these philosophical conversations. And then Phil was like, oh, I like her, uh, right? And then Chloe at the time. Phil is specifically then he's Nat in the book. Yeah, well, that that part of him, yes. And see, that's one of the things is that that the brother has aspects of Phil too because of the whole. Yeah, they all do, but the. The, but specifically, mostly, physically, the the situation he was in, he was the he's the character of Nat. Right. So what what was going on is is that they had Chloe was having to go back to Berkeley three days a week to make money because they weren't making enough money off Phil stuff, and so she was gone for three days a week, and that gave time for Phil to, you know spend time with Anne, have these philosophical conversations, which turned into more. And then um, on obviously April 1st, they they got married. And so, um, and Anne did have like, you know, she, you know, was quoted as saying that she never met anybody like Phil. She loved having conversations with him. He, he was stoked that she wanted him. She let him grow his beard um which chloe would not and you know she thought of phil as this berkeley beatnik type guy and he thought of her as a middle class housewife right and so but we'll, we'll we'll get more into what this all means but i think to me this book is more interesting if you know those biographical notes of phil's and if you don't, it's less interesting. It's one of the reasons why I didn't, well, and I'm not giving away my star rating, but it wasn't very high, partially because I I almost think you have to be a serious dickhead for this book to be more interesting for me. I know, Larry, you're going to disagree, but um, that's okay because, you know, for once, I'm going to be the one that's going to be more negative on the book. For I, once. <laughs> for once, yeah. I know I'm usually super, I'm the ray of sunshine here, right? On, on, but you've had your moments. You've had your moments of, uh, yeah, of just of being the minority report. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm going to be the minority report here today, but I don't know. But we'll see. So, um, anyways, that's that's it for the writing and publication history. Cool. Um, okay, Larry. Yeah. All right, story breakdown, go. Story breakdown, let's go. All right, here's my book report on Welcome to Male Chauvinists Are Afraid of Virginia Woolf, starring Karen <laughs> and Chad, John Francis Boone, and PKD. We start out with this dude who's like, uh, hey, guess what? Japanese people suck, and I cut off this guy's head in my mind. And I like science fiction stuff. And like Atlantis might be real. And uh, like, hey, my sister sucks and my family's psychic. And then we go on to hear about his actual family. Uh, 
but well, basically his sister and her husband, her sister and her husband are kind of, uh, well, how do you, how do you put this politely? Um, they, they, uh, they're that family in the neighborhood, much like mine was when I was a kid that always fights and you can hear them from a block away. That's this family. They're, they're the loud ones, the loud, angry ones. We use a lot of curse words and don't care if they hurt each other's shields. Uh, basically, they are, you know, uh, the characters in Virgin- Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, I can't remember the, the names, Martha and something, George. Such an image of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Yeah, right. They are exactly Richard <laughs> Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, but they're not quite as clever as Edward Albee made those characters. Uh, but so they they have these fights all the time. And Jack, the guy I was just talking about, he's what's her face? Faye's brother. And he's the older brother, but in many ways he acts like the younger brother uh, because he is, he's on the spectrum. We know that he's on the spectrum just by the way he, he carries himself and the things he says and the way he goes about his business and with a, a very methodic, but not really understanding reality sort of way. And I know it's, it's generalized in this and it's not as as well done as it's done nowadays because, well, we didn't know as much back then. So I, I think Dick is doing his best and not doing a terrible job at it, uh, at, at explaining autism. And so what happens is we're going along, there, there's fights happening, there's digs, this couple is just kind of shitty to each other, and then... They, they get Jack to move in with them, and he does a lot of stuff. And we're finding out more that Faye is a terrible person. And we're finding out that, that Charlie is sort of tortured. He's, he's, he's not a great person either because he, he hit his wife, and that's unacceptable. Of course, it's unacceptable to hit any partner, no matter what their, their sex is. It, it just, you don't. You don't beat your partner. <laughs> that's, that's the way it goes. Uh, but he does. But it, we find out that that's his only way of relieving his frustration because he just doesn't have any other method. He's not that smart of a guy. So this is happening. That's happening. Blah, blah, blah. They play badminton. Uh, Charlie has a heart attack. And meanwhile, uh, Faye is trying to date this other dude who's very pretty, but sort of a sad sack, like, like starts out as sort of a like semi-intellectual poor guy, but really ends up being just a sad sack. So this is what happens. Jack <laughs> takes over all the chores, so Faye doesn't have to do anything but have sex with her, her, uh, her new lover, her, her new... Uh, boy toy while Charlie is recovering in the hospital for months, it seems like. And she's torturing this poor young man and, and bending him to her ways. And all the while she is 
contradictive and vile and but somehow she has these redeeming qualities that that she lures people in with like her her beauty her athleticism her her general uh, ability to take charge of any situation to be open and and you know out there and you know you're you're your basic extrovert person and so this is going on and on blah 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 stuff happens jack joins a ufo club which is kind of funny and they they keep going until we find out charlie has this idea that we think is kind of a joke at the beginning that he's going to kill his wife but we find out that charlie's no joke so he goes when he finally gets home buys a gun he shoots all his pets and all of his livestock which is a horrifying scene waits for his wife to come home and then loses the gun they have this little standoff and then the sheriff shows up for some reason and charlie just shoots himself in the head he's like that well, she won this time, and I see that there's no way I'm getting out of this. So, ah, does the thing. And everybody's not really affected by it. <laughs> that's, that's unfortunate for Charlie, but he was out anyway. He just didn't care. As you can imagine, I had a hard time with that scene. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That that was It was pretty awful for me. I can only imagine what it was like for you. It's impossible not to have a hard time with that scene. I yeah, think. you're supposed to. I mean, that's it's it was written painful. Up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so Faye's just moving on uh, as she's slowly getting this uh, this guy Nathan that she's having sex with to fill the role of Charlie. Just she's bending and just molding him into the new Charlie, and he's fighting it but not fighting it hard enough to actually make a difference. He's, he has his little, his little attacks of, I'm not doing what you tell me, but then he does what she tells him. And so he's not, he's not very strong. And he, by the end, uh, we find out the end of the world isn't happening. Uh, Charlie in one way isn't as smart as hell when he changes his will so that Faye gets nothing. And the daughters get everything. They have daughters, by the way. But who cares about them? Uh, apparently, Faye doesn't because she uh, uses them as a tool as well. And then uh, by the end, Jack has learned a little lesson, uh, but ends up basically back where he started at the beginning of the book. Uh, Faye has learned nothing. She is still the same. And Nathan has become the new Charlie. Whether he liked it or not, he has become the new Charlie. And you can see the cycle repeating. And that's the end. There you go. That's the book. Pretty concise there, dude. Um, yeah. One thing that's interesting to note is that time then this book was brought up on our podcast before when we, uh, if you guys recall, when we interviewed Betsy Wolheim, Betsy mentioned that um, that this book was as autobiographical as it gets with PKD, that um, 
you know, her people who knew him would had told her multiple times that uh, if you wanted to get a picture of what Phil was like, that this book, you know, during that era was a good way to do it, which um, isn't a great feeling. No. Um, <laughs> you know, um, if you reflect on it. Um, you, know, you can understand what David Gill is saying even more now. If you've read this book, then you can you can see the elements that that, that Gill is like, dude, you, uh, granted, he's someone that we we respect in a lot of ways. But there's a lot about this guy that you shouldn't respect. Right. So, right. There's a lot of hard edges there. Yeah. Um, and and this book is for that reason. I think it's important for dickheads to read this book. However, um, it's not going to be, this is going to be what I would consider a bitter pill. It's a hard one to take down, whether you like it or not. If you know going into it, that you're seeing a lot of Phil's personality, it doesn't reflect nicely, especially in 2021. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Looking back on some of the things that are here there. So everybody who follows this podcast knows that I break down into sections themes that I, you know, want to address during this section of the show. The themes that I have are Anne writing about himself and yikes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Those those are the sections that I have because there are straight up yikes. Um, however, um, and we normally do this later, but I would like to start with the Kim Stanley Robinson quote before (laughs) we get into it. All right. I'm going to give you one Kim Stanley quote. So make sure. I'm vetoing any more Kim Stanley Robinson quotes from here on out. (laughs) Well, I think this is important. I can sum it up. If you don't want the whole quote, I will sum up basically what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, Kim. So, so the reason why Kim Stanley, for those who don't know, is he wrote his thesis on Philip K. Dick, the novels of Philip K. Dick, and so I long-winded I, and pedantic. That's uh, how I would describe that. Well, Larry, coming in hot today. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, so basically, what Kim Stanley Robinson did in his thesis was talk about how Confessions of a Crap Artist and Time Out of Joint are mirror images of each other. In a sense that um, even though Time Out of Joint was written first and came out that year, we think that during the time that Phil was writing Confessions of a Crap Artist, his most current book at the time was a novel of menace in uh, Time Out of Joint. (laughs) And I think that this idea of... um, how they kind of like Phil's fame as a science fiction writer like plays into it basically. And how, you know, uh, so science fiction, like um, Rival Gum's job is what he says is disreputable and meaningless to the world of 1959, but vital to the world of 1990. And so what was going on here is that, Phil is dealing with in confessions of a crap artist and time out of joint, the feeling of 
feeling worthless for being a science fiction writer in the face of like wanting to be a provider and those things. Inadequacy, basically. Right. And so for that reason, these two novels are kind of linked um, in that sense. And I see what he's saying, because I think even though he had written it already, he would be thinking a lot about Time Out of Joint because it was his most recent book and people would be talking to him about it. Right. And um, also Time Out of Joint deals with the idyllic, you know, suburban thing until the soft drink stand and everything kind of unravels. So you've got a similar thing going on there. But on that said, I don't want to read too much into that connection because while I think it's there, I don't want to overemphasize that because that is the majority of what Kim Stanley Robinson was saying about crap artists. Just tying those two together. Um, Everybody else's thoughts on the connection between crap artists and time out of joint, starting with Anthony. I I don't really, I don't really see it. I, I don't, (laughs) <laughs> it's 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 a concept of of like both not like they take this both novels take place in small towns in america confessions is in marin county where dick lived in time out of joint in an unspecified town farther inland okay <laughs> i set my story in a gas station and so did like eight other people that doesn't mean they're all connected okay so i think it's i think it's really grasping at straws but that's just my pers- personal opinion jason what do you think I, I'm not sure I see the connection there either. I, I, um, I so in '58 he came out with another main or he wrote another mainstream book called In Milton In Milton Lumkey Territory, which oh. I have not read. But apparently it has to do with a truck driver taking up with a woman um, in his travels, hmm. and I'm curious how much that character also reflects this mindset. Um, I'm also wondering about something else, and maybe this is going to send us off on a tangent. But we're fine. With I understand you. the ghettoization of sci-fi, right, and the fact that you're writing for these kind of slightly disreputable magazines that were kind of, you know, sort of under the counters in a way, right? And you were, aside from Bradbury, you're kind of part of this ghetto, right? But what do they actually think he would be getting out of creating these mainstream novels? I was imagining if he had gotten the the, if Knopf had bought the book, how much would he have he gotten for the book? Maybe $500 up front and then percentage of royalties. And chances are a book like that would have just dropped like a stone in the market. You yeah. know, it wasn't whatever the book from here to the to eternity or whatever was the, was the big book of that year. Hmm. So I guess from, yeah. the sta- from the standpoint of him kind of coming to the terms with having to settle for being a science fiction writer and not a mainstream writer, that tension inside this book around reality versus uh, dealing with something more complex, maybe in the the body of Isidore, uh, kind of exemplifies that that kind of conflict. Well, so in that way, I see a resonance to time out of joint, but only kind of right. again through a distorted mirror. <laughs> well, but I, I like that that point of like. He always complained that he wasn't wasn't a literary writer and all that stuff. But really, if he was relying on this to make a living, if he had just done literary work, he would have been 
like lower tier literary work and it wouldn't have made him the money he supposedly needed to survive. So, mm-hmm. so even though he had that complaint, he needed science fiction. Well, There's I also think- not much that's compelling about most of his other literary works, other yeah, than his mainstream that- books. Yeah. Uh, having read five of them or so, um, they are so much inferior to even his worst sci-fi books because he's <laughs> he needs that that element of fantasy to make things more intriguing. Right, right. That was his best his best feature as a writer was creating those those inward worlds and those those strange timelines and all of those things. That's what made him interesting. It wasn't right. the, it wasn't his understanding of people, obviously. Yeah, but he had he had a lot of people saying to him and he talks about that during this era is that people would say to him, when are you going to write a serious book? And so he I think a lot of the drive was the outside judgment and shut up the haters, shut up the haters. But you also got to keep in mind that before 1950, when William. Uh, Anthony Parker, a.k.a. Tony Boucher, walked into art music. Um, he had poo-pooed science fiction as that stuff he read when he was a kid. And he didn't want anything to do with it until Tony Boucher walked into his store. And then all of a sudden he became friends with Tony Boucher and Tony Boucher invited him to, to his writing groups. And that's when he started taking science fiction writing seriously because he met somebody who he thought was intelligent. And I mean, he, he also says that A.E. Van Vogt was his favorite writer when he was a teenager and blah, 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 all that stuff. So, yeah, but he he you, buy, I, you can't buy what he says about anything. Well, but I think right. he had stopped reading uh, science fiction and vote until uh, till the Tony Boucher. Later, yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. And it was Tony Boucher Berkeley and stuff like that. Yeah. And really quickly, like, you know, he got back into it. But I think. That it was definitely so. I think that's in there still. The guy who like thought he was too cool to write science fiction until you know the author of the Complete Werewolf walked into his record store. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then he was like, okay, <laughs> you know. But I think that's at the root here that you see it in Confessions because um, that guy is still in there who thought he was too cool and he wants to prove himself that he can. That he can write a mainstream novel and you know it's funny because i it's like you know as a writer i like that's never a thought that crossed my mind like well i've got to i've got to write a a, a mainstream novel it's just yeah you just want to tell stories that's... you want to tell stories right and 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 i think that for phil this is an interesting time because it's before the hugo right and the hugo is really where he kind of accepted like okay I'm a science fiction writer and I'm good at it and I'm going to take this seriously. And I'm going to, in 1964, I'm going to write 60,000 novels in one year. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then that's, you know, whatever. But at this time, you know, he was still writing at a pretty good pace at this time, but you know, anyways, so let's get into these, let's get into the story. And uh, the first thing that I really want do we want to talk about Anne first or him writing about himself? Um, I, first of all, let me define what I thought about the characters and who they are. Uh, the, the Faye character 
I should get to right away. I believe that's more PKD than Anne because it's his his vision of what a woman is, not reality of what a woman is. Uh, she's chauvinistic. She says stuff like a man needs to tell the woman what to do, that kind of thing. And I think that comes straight from PKD and not from Anne. Uh, and I, I always thought that Isidore was the PKD equivalent because he sort of has had that. His writing is so weird that that would make sense. And then when I was reading it this time, I thought Charlie was the PKD equivalent because of my awareness of his is uh, proclivity to to arguing and violence. And uh, but. To find out that it's actually Nathan, uh, which I, I first figured was just his basic PKD protagonist sort of in a supporting role. Uh, but to find out that it's actually him more than any of the other characters was that's fascinating to me. Right. And we remember how uh, Anne reacted to the depiction of her in Clans of the Alphade Moon. Yeah, she was, she was not, not happy about that. Um, and I don't know that I, you know, it's funny because it's like, it's kind of hilarious to picture him saying like, hey, baby, I wrote this book for you. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And like handing her this manuscript and being like, this is all my love for you. Yeah. And then here's this book. Right? <laughs> um, and I think you're, you're on to something, Larry, that Anne's motives a lot of the time are, or Faye's motives, I keep saying Anne, Faye's motives a lot of the time reflect more um, PKD's views of, of of Anne's motive. Yeah, and what, yeah, so in a good example down, page 15, Faye's whole motive for getting mixed up with a man like this in the first place was to finally wind up with a house such as she did wind up with, right? Yeah. Like, like this is all her big plan to get the house. Yeah, everything is an ulterior motive, you know, there's no real, she has no real affection, calls her, you know, psychopathic or whatever he calls her, uh, you know, there's there's no way all of that is true. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to get a little pandant, uh, pedantic here, too, because um, I think, um, and pardon me if I get a little Kim Stanley Robinson here, but I think that house and what's going on with the house is closing this era of the 50s PKD writing because... As we all know, in the 50s, every novel ended with going off to the frontier. And so what's happening here, and we've talked at length with this, with about this with Evan Lampy and the episodes we've had Evan on. In the 50s, there's an ideal. Shout out to Evan Lampy. Yeah, shout out, Evan. Um, There in the 50s, there's this idealism of the frontier. And then in the early 60s, there's the hellscape of the frontier when you get there, right? So, like, in the early days, it's like, oh, at the end of the book, we're going to go off to Mars and we're going to be super happy. Right. And then, and then we have Perky Pat and the hell of actually the reality of getting to Mars and to doing yeah. all those things. So if this book is a bridge, it's also a bridge in the sense that that house in the novel represents, like, oh, we finally got it. We got our our 
our ideal frontier. Right. And that's what on. Uh, and and in that way, frontier. in that way, it's very important that the house is kind of this shambolic thing. Like it's a yeah. pain to upkeep. The the heating is just this monstrosity, right? The house seems yeah. to sprawl all over the place. And it's, it's just a, whole, a mess. It doesn't match any of the other houses. It's it's sort of a it's almost an eyesore and into itself and and so on page 19 um there's a section where he talks about the horses and the collie dog and how wonderful it is and i literally just wrote on there the ideal end to the frontier dreams right here so that's something that i think is really important except he can't he can't do happy (laughs) like like jason's saying (laughs) he can't just do happy and idyllic it has to be idyllic and horrible at the same time there's right. this whole section right a full page paragraph in my kindle edition where they talk about the drainage system and the wall heaters and you gotta how she has to wash clothes in the zinc bucket and they can't even get babysitters out there right <laughs> um and then on page 47 talking about his vision of Faye um in here Ex-college queen, he said, ex-sorority girl, marries well-to-do man, moves to Marin County, starts modern dance group. Uh, culture to the farmers and milkers, he said. And then Faye says, kiss my ass when he's talking about it. But I, it's like, you know, it's kind of a real, like, kind of judgmental thing about because Faye moved out there with her first husband and was, you know, she was actually more kind of similar to the crap artist. She was doing the saucer groups and she was into like weird and esoteric things. And so like, oh, okay. yeah. So, so, th- so there's a little bit of mm-hmm. her in Jack is as well. So according to divine invasions anyways. Um, so more on Anne and uh, what he's saying about her. Page 66, when you get to know me better, you'll learn not to pay attention to me. I'm a crude, vulgar person. Remember one day in the public library, I said the word fuck in front of a librarian. I could have died. And she never went back. Yeah. Yeah. That's so now we end up with one of the worst parts of one of the this can go in yikes. It can go in uh, (laughs) writing about Anne. And this is, to me, the part where I literally just wrote, oh, boy, on the page because it's so bad. And that is page 130 of the Mariner edition. And he says, I wonder if I'll end up hitting her, he thought. He had never in his life hit a woman. And yet he already sensed that Faye was the kind of woman who forced a man into hitting her, who left him no alternative. No doubt she failed to see this. It would not be to her advantage to see this. Um, And I just wrote ugh because it's so awful. (laughs) Um, And then he says, when she gets tired of me or afraid of me and wants to get rid of me, well, I have a heart attack too. Um, And then to some extent, I was afraid of her. And like, dude, this is like the worst. This is really That's. uh, I mean, that's, it's sort of set up to her you know, making him the next Charlie. Yeah. So that's that's basically him seeing it's it's foreshadowing him becoming 
the next Charlie. Yeah, and then on the next page, he says, um, why was I so drawn to her physical attractiveness? In the past, I had never been drawn to thin women. And admittedly, she was thin. Sometimes she appeared even scrawny. Perhaps it was those middle-class values. It seemed to him there was something in her, something sturdy and sensible. Possibly I admire those values. I feel like she'd make a good wife. She does... She does believe as she does because she is so middle class. This is very unrevolutionary, conservative matter. Marriage is a conservative matter. Um, so these two pages were super rough for me <laughs> to read. And just like, and it's one of the parts that obviously does not age well, but I don't think it could have read well then. So. No, I mean, why yeah. would it? <laughs> no, it's terrible. Um but then, you know, values were weird back then. Like, Yeah. And then... Yeah. Um, it also brings in so many of the issues I had trouble with in this book. And they're all kind of contained in those couple pages. I mean, uh, the Tampax scene in chapter or early on in the oh, book that was, that was, was just like... I almost, that's the point where I almost put the book down right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, this whole question of like, what is it about Kay that's even compelling to people? Because I, I struggle to find her good qualities, even on the physical side, the way he described her. She never seemed, uh, 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 well, I mean, honestly, uh, that that was better off with Gwen uh, in terms of just her, well, he, in terms of physical beauty. But that's, there's a couple times where. That's the whole point is that yeah. he was better off with Gwen. Yeah. Like that's, I think, what PKD is trying to say is that, you know, he had the guy basically fucked up, and it, it's trying to blame the woman for him fucking up, you know, instead of blaming himself. Right, for, and we know that he has said repeatedly that he, after he and Anne got married, he admitted many times that he had done wrong by Cleo, that he had been very bad to her. And so a lot of this is him, like, you know, apologizing or trying to. No, just like I think I mean, it's one or the other. Really, it's highlighting true. like, yes, I know, I, I, I didn't do well by that by that woman, and I don't know if he thinks he's being like real arty or like serious lit by like put putting his a, a very, you know ugly mirror on himself i don't know i don't know what the motivation is on that because but he, he is doing a couple of, of things that you like best the parallels and the you know stuff like that well it's basically parallels he's paralleling yeah. the the two different relationships and then how they they swap and become the same relationship and blah 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 all those i think he's doing some really art, artistic things here it's just clumsy yeah, because so, I think well, he's I think he's trying too hard. I, I, I really feel I like this novel comes across as a literary try hard novel. When you look at literary fiction, right, what are some of the key components to popular novels that hit it big? Right. They're a little bleak. They're full of uh, violence that, you know, uh, against literally everyone. <laughs> and and we we kind of look at it as being more artistic because it's oh it's showing you the ugliness of 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 reality of real yeah. life you know and it's 
I would be, if I had read this in my early 20s, I'd probably have had a different feeling towards it than I do reading it at 35. Good. But I, I think part of part of the, the clunkiness of it is Dick is basically writing what he thinks is going to be a literary mainstream novel. Yeah. And, and on that front, I think he kind of succeeded. But the problem is that it's boring. You know, it's it really doesn't do a whole lot. So he's funneling all of his relationship angst into these characters because I, I truly believe he thinks like, well, that's what makes a novel literary and mainstream is that you 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 focus on character more than, you know, plot I, as I opposed to genre fiction. I didn't find it boring, yeah. but but I agree with most of what you say. It's it's very clunky, uh, which I didn't notice oh. when I read it. When I oh, read it, it's, it, there's parts that are mad boring, but we'll yeah. we'll get into that when I but when the, I uh, when it's my turn. But when I read it when I was 21, I admit that I was I must have been totally misogynistic because I didn't see those. I, I mean, basically, what did I know about women at 21? I didn't know shit. Uh, but I, I like totally bought that she was this this villain through and through and that she had no real redeeming qualities and that, you know, male female relationships always end up in tragedy and horror. Like I, I, I bought all that when I was young. So to me, it was, it was more fulfilling because a lot of my life was reflected in it at that time. But now I look at it and I'm like, Oh man, I was kind of a piece of shit when I was young. <laughs> so, well, and th- I guess that, that's, serves a role with the novel too but for me like i was the only thing that kept me from being bored in this novel is that is the meta track as a dickhead knowing like looking for the things that oh yeah that's autobiographical that's not autobiographical and i don't think if i hadn't read divine invasions three times in my life, you know, I, I don't know that I would find this as interesting. I don't know that if I hadn't interviewed David Gill and heard a lot of these stories specifically from Gill, you know, who who had, uh, you know, who got out to my boy, David Gill. I, I think in a lot of ways had a working relationship with Anne directly, you know, and talked to her a lot. So knew her stories personally. But you know, I, that, I, that makes a big I read this both with knowledge and without knowledge. And I enjoyed it much more without the knowledge. So, okay, I, I don't know if you you can truly judge unless you've done both, you know. But I, even then, I was much younger, so I didn't see the literary flaws. I didn't see the actual technical flaws in the writing or a bunch of other things. So, like it, it's I don't know. It's hard to uh, it's hard to judge the the book on those two with those two different dynamics. All right, Jason, what do you think about this aspect of Anne specifically before we move on to, to Phil writing about himself, which is the next section, but like with Faye and Anne and, and, and what does this say about her? Do you think in this novel? Like, I think it says less about her than it says about his interpretation of her. Sure. And this is so clearly yeah. filtered through Dick's eyes. And in her mind, I think her actions are all reasonable and logical and following her own very specific kind of way of looking at the world. Um, whether that that's a truly reflected in the inner monologue he gives us or not for her 
is a different question, and I'm not sure uh, it does. But we really are seeing, it was clear to me from the very beginning with, with the way he struggles with this character, and I think he does struggle with her because she just, she never comes alive. She's still, she always feels like this half-realized character that he's kind of struggling with his own feelings about her and trying to put the three-dimensionality of this character into this two-dimensional figure. He's never able to play the, the to do the job of kind of exploding her back into a three-dimensional character, in part because that's just not really Dick's forte at all. No, women and, are not. When I think of Dick's characters, I never think of fully realized characters with a few notable exceptions. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, and, you know, the, the thing is, too, this is, even in terms of his mainstream books, this is his seventh mainstream book. So he has tried to, to write real-world characters before, and, you know, obviously he's wrote, what, four or five sci-fi novels before this and innumerable short stories. Oh, no, no, is, he had, at this time he had written over, he had written like 15, he just hadn't published. Okay. All oh, right, right, right. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is him, his limitations, him kind of struggling against his own limitations as a writer and his own ability, inability to really put himself in other people's positions, which kind of is a, just a through point through story in his life in general, I think, uh, honestly, in my life, too. But that's a whole different tangent. <laughs> well, it's just funny, too, to think about the last two books that he put out in the world before he sat down to write this were Balkan's Hammer and Dr. Futurity. You know, and also it, the man whose teeth were. When does that one come in? The man whose teeth were all. So he wrote two books after this that were mainstream books: Humpty Dumpty in Oakland and The Man Whose Teeth Were All Exactly oh, okay. Alike. Those were after. Fifty-eight. He wrote the Milton Lumpke territory. Okay. And none of those got. Published. That's, that's in the. That's in that same that same prior to is the Milton Lumpke book. Yeah. That's okay. gonna be the anticlimactic ending of our podcast when we do all of the posts. Post yeah, well, we've got some, books, we've but, got some good ones in there. In I terms mean, of boredom, uh, it's less boring, I'll say, than uh, Gather Yourselves Together, 52. <laughs> yeah. Less boring than The Broken Bubble from 56, uh, which I couldn't, I barely dragged myself to the end for. But yeah, there's, there's a good amount of boredom in this book, too. All right, so let's get into PKD specifically commenting on himself. Um, one of the... Um, best examples, I or an early one that I want to talk about is um, page 35 of the Mariner edition. He pointed to a pile of notebooks filled, he could I could see, with pages of his writing. At one time, he had spent his spare time writing letters to newspapers. And here, once more, he was involved in the long-winded crank project. Uh, probably elaborately some schemes for irritating, for irrigating the Sahara Desert, uh, picking up the first notebook, Charlie thumbed through it and then tossed it down. It's a diary. No, Jack said, arising. Uh, it's a scientific account of proven facts. So um, this scientific account of proven facts thing is just basically another way to, for him to talk about being a science fiction writer without, like, you know, if he had made the novel about being a science fiction writer, right, then... He would have to get specifically into all those things. So he had to find something that was similar, but not the same. And 
So having this like guy who is into pranks and weird stuff and UFOs and and I think maybe if there had been more like crystals and things like beatnicky stuff, it might have worked a little better. But um, but it's obviously just Phil commenting on you know this these these weird habits that he that he had so i don't know if anybody has anything the autobiographical well i i don't have much really other than the autobiographic elements just feel really on the surface when he talks about him and uh makes me wonder if he saw himself as being on the spectrum that's a modern way of putting it but saw himself as being this kind of weirdo outsider in some ways um, from what I've read about Dick, he saw himself also as a pretty literary man, he loved opera and classical music. Um, so maybe he saw himself as a step above Jack in this book. So I wonder where the, how, how he sees himself in this character versus almost uh, seeing this character as an inferior version of himself, maybe. Mm-hmm. On page 66, he talks about what a vulgar person he can be and getting kicked out of the library and that whole scene. And that also, you know, he, um, you know, he also comments on himself basically as being somebody who's good with children that, you know, that the girls love him. So there's all these kinds of interesting aspects of like, you know, what makes these characters a reflection of him. Um, Page 119 is where he gets a little bit into the paranoia. He says, and the uh, 119 of the Mariner edition, trouble is he realized once you start thinking along these lines, once you start looking for indications that you are being used, you can find evidence everywhere. Paranoia. If she asks you to drive her to Pentaluma to pick up a hundred pound sack of duck feed, but she can obviously lift herself is a sign that you are no longer a man, a human being, but merely a, a machine capable of picking up a hundred pounds and thrusting it in the back for a car. So then he's like kind of writing about this domestic thing of like, you know, like, Oh, am I getting used in this relationship? But he's talking about his own paranoia there, mm-hmm. you know? And that's like one of the few times where we see Phil commenting on, you know what? A lot of people think that he had the, the healthy sense of paranoia. I mean, he writes about paranoia all the time. We talk, we joke about it here, but you know, that's a time where he's really like kind of showing it. I, th- I think Dick's always been very conflicted in terms of who he is as a writer and as a, as just a human being. We've seen time and time again, that there seems to be this like consistent thread of him wanting to be just a regular guy wanting to be literary and creative and like, I, I feel like that clashes within him all the time. You know, dude, I gotta do this and I gotta, I gotta be a literary writer and I'll be, finally, I'll, I'll have cred, right? But my genre fiction sells, but it, you know. So I, I think that I agree that a lot of these characters are different variations of who he is or who he wants to be or who he thinks he should be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that said, I also think Faye does represent that typical Dickian uh, character of she's strong-willed, she's fiery, but she's also gonna fuck up my whole life. <laughs> Which not to, no, I mean not to sound like crass, but that True. that that is a constant female character in his work. Yeah. Okay. Now, one of the most important scenes to me on the meta commentary on on 
Phil and his life comes on page 126 and 127. David, pump your energy up, my man. You're, you're, you're putting me to sleep. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Come on. on page 126. There you go. There you go. Thank you. Now, we've already talked about this scene a little bit, but I want to get, I want to drill down on it. Faye said, I'm in love with you. You know how to affect me. Nobody ever affected me that way in my entire life. But you, uh, you're thinking about marriage, aren't you? Could you support me? I have a house budget of 12000 a year. Did you know that? And, you know, he says, yeah, yes. I know. And then um, she goes through all the things about the community property. And then on the next page is where she says, you could stop your studying, go full, t- go to work full time. You uh, couldn't you earn enough in real estate game to support us. I know a man in San Francisco who earns 14,000 a year in real estate. Men make fortunes in real estate. And so this, this, see, this was obviously a conversation they had, right? Uh, drilled down, put in through the, the fill filter, right? And but it's also literary, literarily speaking, it's also a parallel to the to the Wonderland or whatever it's called scene, where he realizes that all these things she said in that scene are going to be fact. He knows that he's going to give up school. He knows he's going to go uh, end up in a shit job that he can't he can't get out of because he has to support her, and he's just trying to fight that, even though he knows. That's what's going to happen with his life. That's good. That's good writing in my, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not necessarily saying that, it, that that's a bad, I think I'm not saying that it's a bad scene. No, I I'm, think, not, I'm not implying you did. Yeah. I'm just saying that that is, that is a reflection of his real life right there. That is, that is part of something that we're seeing. And, and, and honestly, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think, I think, you know, he's, reflecting things that we're we're going to see really come to a head with him especially with the jewelry business when, when we get to um to the man in the high castle uh creation and and all that so i, I think it's one of the in some aspects it's one of the stronger parts of the book um, um i i just want to throw this out there that i think maybe we're looking too closely at the relationship between the book and PKD's life, not the book as a book. Sure. Yeah. And, I, and I'll fully admit to that because I couldn't separate the two. So let's talk. So let's oh, talk I, about it as a as a novel. Yeah, I, I'm yeah, happy to do that. Yeah. But where do you want to start? <laughs> well, I, mean, I think in the foreshadowing is a good place there to be talking about how he sets up the realism of, of the dream coming true. Um, this, I mean, she is portrayed as having this fantasy in her mind of getting together with this guy who's basically a younger, more interesting version of her husband. Right. Right. Who has a slightly more interesting job, but still she's clearly going to be just differently miserable with him. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, and so um, he's a little bit, he's prettier. Like if she says constantly, you're so pretty. Well, and, and where the novel you know, di- diverges too is like Charlie coming home and, and massacring all the animals on the farm, like, and, and in the process of like planning, you know, and planning to kill her, but end, ends up killing himself. They, what mean, do you mean by diverge though, David? Because that didn't seem out of left field for me. That 
I, no, I, I I'm saw saying that, that diverges from real life. It was foreshadowed for sure, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. See, I'm not, saying it diverges oh, of course, from yeah. real life. We're talking about it as a book. <laughs> I know, but that's one of the parts that is absolutely a creation of it. And I do think like the saucer groups and those kinds of things are a little bit more fictionalized and, and made and, and, and they're more a part of it. I just wish, honestly, even if he's trying to do a literary novel and maybe he didn't want to do that because he was afraid that it would be looked upon as just adjacent to science fiction again. But I almost feel like that the saucer groups were funny and interesting and something that I would like to have known more about, like 50s saucer groups. Um, that sounds funny and interesting, you know. Um, I had the same reaction. It comes about halfway through the book. I wish that could have been an element all the way through. Would have been a nice contrast. It was a nice contrast when it came in to the domestic stuff because it's all so kind of outlandish. They're, they're just a nice kind of one's big, one's little, one's about the world coming to an end theoretically, and one isn't. Um, it's also like this, the small, it could have been turned into like the small satire of sci- sci-fi novels too. And the paranoia so many of his characters feel in the sci-fi novels. It would have it would have been great to have Claudia as one of the voices in the book. Yeah, I, I really I, agree, I agree with, with that. that. I, 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 think... I thought about that when I was reading it. Why why is this sort of main character like it? You know, she's on the side a little bit. But I also think that would have placed Jack as more of an outsider if we got more time with the UFO group, and it would have very much provided a much relieving contrast to the the satirizing of like fifties, you know, relationship culture. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Jason on that. But the uh, the thing is that everyone is calling Isidore a freak and a, and a joke and all mm-hmm. this and a nut and all that. He But he's not, it, to our standards, I think, nowadays, he's not that far outside of most people nowadays. That are, but are in, 19, in, in the 1950s, though, he's he would have essentially, been that, a, you know, yeah. as crazy as a sack of doorknobs, right? Like. <laughs> But we're all sitting here with our books and everything right behind us, like all the stuff he collected in his room. Yeah. Yeah. Like none of that seems abnormal to us. Like who doesn't have a collection of rocks or just something weird that they keep around because it, it, it it gives them pleasure. Uh I mean, I literally have some rocks behind me. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I, I think I, you know, I, I, of course, went into this. I just recently went back and listened to our Betsy Wilhelm interview. So the whole autobiographical thing was absolutely in my head every minute of reading this. And I admit that. Uh, so it was hard for me to separate that. It, that being said, as, as a novel, I think that if it had strayed more from his life, then it would have forced me not to think that way. But the thing is, is it didn't stray that far from his life. He didn't do as much with it. He was um, having that experience of moving out into the country area of the Bay Area that is like not so country anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> this time. Well, let's say, I mean, where he lived is still very country. Yeah. And well, then- let's let's go on the tangent of separating it more from Dick though at, at, at the core of this novel what do you think he was trying to do with this book um and i'll pose that question to jason first well at the core of the i think he was trying to think through some of his feelings about the relationship change he just had um I, I, let me answer your 
question, Anthony, with uh, a response to David here. So chapter 20 is all focused on Isidore. And Isidore has a story arc. And in the end, he kind of comes to peace with the fact the UFO cult wasn't actually a thing. And he has this moment where he says, I'm going to cast aside all my juvenile crap and I'm going to move on with my life. And the, the book, the very end of the book is him saying um, he's going to move to San Francisco and not squander Charlie's money on some charlatan. Uh, he even has this epiphany, right? On the basis of past choices, it seems pretty, sorry, I can't talk. On the basis of past choices, it seems pretty evident that my judgment is not of the best. He's come to a conclusion. But but then he goes right back to the same techniques, which I think is a great sort of joke at the mm-hmm. end of the book, is that in, it, he doesn't look at it in the way that a normal person would do, like, okay, I'm going to go to a shrink and I'm going to get find out what's wrong with me. He says, I'm going to test every single... I'm going to take this soul <laughs> survey and... By the way, we could now do online and get all those ratings for any doctor anywhere. Uh, So if if we see uh, Isidore as one of the manifestations of Dick, then we see him kind of thinking through, maybe I do need to turn this corner. Maybe I do need to move away from this writing and embrace what's going to allow me to be successful. I'm not going to squander my opportunity. But then, uh, as I'm saying, that that I, I agree with you that he went to that point. But then he went straight back to the old way of thinking mm-hmm. with that, with that, I'm going to test every psychiatrist. Yeah. And I feel like he's, he went to that, that, you know, Jack having this huge arc of, of a change, a full change in character. But then at the last minute, basically the last paragraph of the book, he, he retracts all that change and goes back to the same way of thinking. Because in the end, we can't escape ourselves and who we are, our thought patterns, right? I mean, that's that's in how the I end, we're going to end up with 2,000 pages of manuscript returned to us. <laughs> box, <laughs> right. And we're going to have that's, to write science fiction I mean, novels. I, I, I like I the change and I like the change back. I thought it was funny, but also reflected reality. Like mm-hmm. you want to change. You want to be a different person. You want to grow. But inevitably we usually go back to just how we were. That's that it reflects real life. Now, usually I have like five different sections of themes that I'm searching for or, or working with. And here I only had four. And I did, I did a lot less highlighting of this book than I do most of them. Now, some of them is just because I'm highlighting all the conats and precogs and, and all the dickisms, <laughs> which we don't have here. And so so for whatever reason, I have I have less. I have less to go on. But what am I missing here? Like, what have I not brought up that you guys are feeling like is going on in this book? Because I, for me, like, I just cannot separate his life from this. And, and for that reason, I think that a lot of it, you know, was less. Well, less well what about the kids, David? Did, did Anne have kids? Uh, I believe from a previous yeah. husband. Yes. And then I uh, had some with Phil too. So um, okay. I got a daughter with Phil at least. I mean, I'd have to look at Divorcepedia. To- I only, I only have one, one quote that uh, I, I had others, but that that's basically like, 
when I was growing up, I was in the yelling house that I talked about. And then when I lived in the country in New York, I had the same experience with my dog coming up and just spitting up some weird like organ from some dead thing. It was disgusting. And he talks and he talks about this, like them bringing deer heads home. It was, it was very, very real to me, those scenes. Um, but this is uh, what's her face? It's Faye <clears throat> talking about talking. I think it's almost on the same page as what you you quoted earlier. Uh, but she's talking about uh, they're talking about getting married and that she could ask for a divorce, right? Mm. And she says, for the girl's sake, they need a father. It's the father who establishes the authority in the home. He relates the family to the outer world, to society. The mother does nothing but keep everyone fed and clothed and warm. To me, that's that's pure PKD, putting his, his own thoughts on what a family structure should be onto Faye. And that doesn't, uh, I, maybe it did, maybe Anne said that at some point, but I doubt it. I doubt that she had that, yeah. that view. I would agree. It was pure PKD, in my opinion. That's sort of what led me to think that her character is just PKD's view of what a woman is. Well, I mean, that could just be his lack, yeah. his lack of ability to empathize with her fully, you know, coming. But, but, coming I mean, just having that in there just shows. Like he didn't understand relationships in any way. He, he didn't he didn't understand that it involves people and not just trying to accomplish the goals of society. Yeah, it's funny because I've been doing a lot of because the TV show just premiered. I've been doing a lot of talking about uh, Isaac Asimov and how because foundation because with foundation they're having to write human characters right and they're having to like flesh out all the characters and some of the like knuckle dragger like get off my lawn old sci-fi purists are like. Why are they putting human beings in this story that we can relate to? This is Isaac Asimov. We we don't need that, you know. And it's well, a lot of people don't understand the translation to film. Yeah, like and, that's 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 not their it's not their fault. It's just they can't they can't conceive of why it would be that way. But I I read one review of this book where somebody was saying that character development just wasn't a thing when this was written. And I laughed because, you know, just because I was like, maybe in science fiction it wasn't. <laughs> but it, the, the idea that people weren't writing characters <laughs> yeah, is mind-boggling. Yeah, it made my brain hurt when I saw that. But I, you know, I do think that there are, and we see in books that are coming very soon after he wrote this, that he started to do better with characters like except for women even characters like Tagomi from another culture was better written than than you know a lot of his work so we know it's coming but i just think here it's it's a lot of there's a whole lot of fill in all the characters and it would be hilarious to adapt this as a um 
as a like animated movie where all the characters were Phil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, right. Do you think he could pull off this book in the same way if the characters weren't reflections of him, though? Because I think his power comes from having characters who in some way reflect his view of the world. Uh, yeah. I think it would have been stale if he tried to create characters who were I mean, outside of his experience. I mean, like there's always an aspect of Phil in, in his books. Uh, I just think that makes him great in my mind. Yeah. Like you can always see him coming through in some way. His uncertainty, his confusion, his misery, right. his yeah. uh, existential concern about the universe in general. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that he would be a writer if he didn't have that element in there. You know, he would, he would take some other job. He would be working in record stores till he died, you know? So I, it's essential to his writing, and yeah, there's no way he could he could function as a writer without having the the fill elements in there. Well, keep in mind too, part of one of the reasons why he quit the record store is because he was agoraphobic and hated and was afraid of people, and um, so like that doesn't yeah yeah create, you create a situation where you write really good and, and effective characters when. When, when you can't even attend the writer's group at Tony Boucher's house, so you have to send Cleo to take notes on your story because you're too afraid to go yourself. I don't, I don't know if it have to is, uh, is what we're going with here. Um, I don't know, but I'm just saying it, it adds to a I guy like who's Phil, not going to write. Another thing characters. about Phil is that uh, it is about, uh, about Faye. I mean, is yeah. that I think a lot of her laziness that he's talking about, that's Phil. Phil didn't want to do anything but write. So he's not hes not going to work hard. He's not going to do any of those things. He's going to get other people to do things for him by any means necessary. That's, how, that's just how I see it. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, his, his constant uh, bending of the truth and, and, agrand- and, and uh, creating all these, all these uh, amazing stories you know, about things he did and didn't do and the FBI coming in and all that stuff. Like, I I think he was just a little bit lazy. All right. Um, on that note, uh, do we have anything else? That That's we- it? That's all you got to say about that? Classic David move. I listened to you say this thing and then immediately moved on after you got it out of your system. Well, no, I understand what you're saying, Larry, is that that a lot of this comes down to his like because you're right. He does he does have other people do things for him all the time. No, I heard you. Um, and 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 it comes across in some of his work where, you know, it's funny because his characters are all working class, you know, people. But he's a guy who who craved to not be that and to right. have, he claimed like, that he had agoraphobia so he couldn't work in a store. Yeah. I mean, whether it's true or not, it, 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 I, I don't know, but it sounds like an easy excuse to get out of doing things. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Well, what's hilarious too, is that he ended up sending his mother many times to Boucher's group and she ended up becoming a writer, started writing for the oh, really? group. Oh. Yeah. She ended up writing stuff. She was a failed writer too. Um, does, does she have any books that we can read? No, like I think they're lost. Or anything? The, I think we're yeah. lost to the world. But she was going to the voucher group for a while and taking. She would take Phil's stories for him, just like 
um, Cleo did. Right. And then, um, you know, so that's how we have a lot of the notes between Tony Boucher and Phil is because he wasn't going. Right. To the Thursday night writers groups, he was sending his mother and his wife to go. And then so there having, were these, having been in a writer's group, like yeah. I don't understand how you do it, how you can be in a writer's group in that in that and not actually go. Yeah. 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 It's kind of weird. Um, yeah, it's a weird aspect of it. But all right. So let's get into uh, are we ready for final thoughts or is there anything we've missed? I wanted to talk about one more theme. OK, well, if that's go. OK, if you don't want, yeah. if you don't no, mind me extending. No, no, bit, go, Jay, no, please, go which is it. sense of place. Okay. Yeah. One thing that I love in Dick novels is the sense of place, whether it's uh, Mars, a Martian time slip, or the remaining uh, places on Earth in a do androids dream. Um, and I think in Crap Artist and also in The Man Whose Teeth Are Exactly Alike, he delivers such a great vision of Marin County during that time frame. And this idea of physical isolation is so intriguing and powerful there's so many scenes of people rushing along highways or dashing to the mayfair market or uh you know just experiencing that small town life um you know it's it's been written about dick uh, dick's earlier novels that like there are kind of this nostalgia trip for an america that's long past sure. and you know for all the the yeah, so for all the, the problems these characters go through, uh, the sense of place in this book is very strong. Well, and and I thought it was exciting, actually, to see a, a vision of America that was so specific that's completely lost now. Okay, so it's a good point. I mean, it's amazing an amazing point because when I read this book, I was living in Marin County. Uh, I was living in Novato and... Like all the all the places he talks about, and I was living there in '94, so it was obviously late, much later. But much most of the Marin County stays the same. It it doesn't change a lot. I mean, San Rafael gets bigger, but that's really the only place that grows because everything else is so rich that they don't want change, and they can afford to not have change. And I was going to all the places he talked about. And seeing all the all the street signs that were the same, and and uh, you're right, he did a great job of describing that area. Well, and, it, and, and any book that does that is going to be. When I first moved to San Diego, I read a book about the free speech fight in 1912 in San Diego, and you know, just reading that Emma Goldman got that her traveling partner got dragged out of the U.S. Grant Hotel, which still exists, you know, <laughs> was mind-boggling to me. Like, oh my God you know, 1912, this happened. And I do think that the, the sense of place in this book, I mean, I don't know Marin County. I've only gone through it. Right. But I, I, I do get a sense of that. And that is, that is cool. That is, that is a neat thing that I think could easily be lost reading this. If you're not, if you don't know the place at all, you know, So uh, a little earlier when I was a teenager, I read these La La Land books and he, has this detective office on Hollywood and Vine. And so I was super excited to go to Hollywood and Vine and see where exactly he had this office. And uh, I went up there when I was a teen with a friend of mine and there's nothing on Hollywood and Vine. <laughs> it's just, 
basically parking lots. <laughs> There's no way he could have had an office on Hollywood and Vine. That was that was great in its own in its own way in creating that vision in my mind and then totally having it busted. But it's the opposite happened here with everything being where it should be. Still to to this day, you guys were with me for the most mind blowing like this is a real place thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, going to the church, the Prince of Darkness was filmed in, which is like my all time. Wow. Yeah, we went cool. to a screening of the movie in the church. It was pretty badass. That yeah, a friend cool. of mine runs the theater there. So <laughs> yeah, that that is so so cool. Um, when you get that sense of place, that is awesome, and I do think that that's a cool part of this book that maybe would be better for people who know the Bay Area better. You know, yeah. but. But Jason, you 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 really felt like that that you got a sense of the era as well reading this, and that was the thing that you yeah. Enjoyed. People are giving credit that the supermarket and the, the idea of the small town where everybody knows each other and the the gossip kind of flowing through the the town. Uh, Disney version of of America in a good way. But that's what he was looking for by moving out there. That's what he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, anything else on that theme, or we can we go to final thoughts? Um, uh, who wants to start? Um, I'll go. Okay. I have, I have a, a story. <laughs> so, I, like I said, I've read this book twice. I read it when I was in my, my early 20s, and I read it now. Uh, and also, like I said, I was living in Marin County, I was visiting San Francisco on a semi-regular basis. And uh, so and I was misogynistic. I was young. I, I sort of felt like I understood and could relate to all these characters in some fashion or another, uh, including Faye. I, I could understand what she thought, like manipulation over caring. You know, that kind of made sense to me back then uh, in my my misspent youth. And so when I first read this book, I loved I loved every moment of it and thought it was the one of the best books I had read because I didn't understand like the flaws in the technique and I didn't I didn't see the technical stuff that I see now, et cetera, et cetera. But reading it this time, I still I still had a good time reading it, and I still enjoyed it. But I, I was able to pick out the flaws not only in the the writing itself, in the structure, but all the things we've learned since 1994. All the things we've learned about how to treat people and how to uh, how to uh, use proper language with people, like just to see the growth in our own society through my own experience was a, a fascinating change for me. It was a, a good lesson. Um, and so we're doing, we're doing our judgments or yeah. Yeah. Judgments? Uh, so, you know, if this were 94, it would be five stars. No doubt. No, no question. But now uh, I have to give it, Three and a half dead horses <laughs> on the farm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> three okay. and a half dead horses uh, because of 
like I said, the, the, the change in society, the change in my own viewpoint, uh, all that stuff. It's, it's, this was a, an eye-opener for me about my past. So I enjoyed that aspect. All right. Um, I am going to give – my feeling on it was that as an experience of, like, reading about PKD's life through the lens of an autobiographical novel that you can kind of glean – from him, I could have had a three-star experience, but as a novel on its own, I really didn't think there was too much to it. And um, I know Gil says that it's his best literary novel by a long shot, which kind of scares me. Um, <laughs> and but I couldn't really do better than um, two saucer group members out of five for my rating. I I was not a fan. Um, I enjoyed the experience of doing this for the podcast and like learning about it and reading about comparing it to his life. But so I had a fun experience, but if you're just asking me in the novel itself, I'm going to say two. It's fair. Anthony. Bum, bum, bum. All right. Um, I think, last. Get I, into think it. My, I think my <laughs> Larry's just waiting for my opinion. Um, I, I think my experience with this book would have been very different had I read this when I was younger, but I'm, I'm 35 now. So I would probably say in my, or like if I were 15 or 16, what was that like 2001, 2002, I, I probably would have enjoyed it more. Uh, I think that I'm kind of, I'm kind of over these meandering literary novels. Um, it, it, I don't think the shifting points of POVs really lent to any of a kind of good experience, but it, it wasn't a bad experience. It just left me kind of wondering what was the purpose of all the shifting POVs? Cause I never really felt like I think he was just doing it cause he wanted to do it, which is, which is fine. I, it, it just, it, it felt purposeless to me. It would have worked. Well, and since some well of it was first person. person. Too, too many people talking at once. Larry go first. It, it would have worked as well if not better in third just a straight third person right I, well, yeah because the part of the problem is that first chapter is first person and then it's like well who who i got confused. well i believe phase chapter is first person too or yeah. is is phase yeah. third person right. and charlie charlie is third person no, Nathan is third person, right? The first one is first person. Well, or something right. like there's one of those. Jack there. Jack is first. So so Jack and Faye are for first person POV, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the rest, all the other characters are, are third person. Yeah. And look, my Wait, order. Hold on, David. Is... Hold, hold on, David. It's <laughs> it's if if the, the purpose was to show how if those two are first person POV, just let me work this out in my head as I, as my mouth spits these words out. And that was kind of used as a way to kind of show how they interpret the experiences of everybody we're getting the third person POVs from, then I would have seen it differently and I would have kind of followed these characters in a different way. Yeah. But it, it doesn't, it just seems very much a random choice of who's getting which POV. Yeah. Uh, in my, in my opinion. And I, I just think that I think Dick was successful in writing what we would consider a literary novel. I think this is the book he thought he was so kind of supposed to write to be a mainstream writer. And I, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but it 
as a Dick book, you know, if you come to this as a Philip K. Dick fan of his sci-fi work, I think you're probably not going to enjoy this one as much. But I do. But yeah, right. But you, you, I would consider everybody that's here today somebody who likes Dick's work more than just your average sci-fi reader. Sure. And yeah. you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. that that that's been my assumption all three years. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. I think it might work for people who don't like his sci-fi stuff. I think they might see this as Dick being a little more mature than, you know, all the space pirate stuff. No, but I think originally you're, you're right. Is that even if you're into literary work and you have a knowledge of, of structure, you're going to see the flaws in that structure and just be like, Oh, this isn't very good. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen the UFO group a lot more. I think that would have been a more interesting angle. I would have gotten to know Jack a little bit more because a lot of this story, I kind of wondered, like, who's this story really about? I guess at the end of the day, it's about everybody, right? I thought it was mostly <laughs> about Faye and Charlie, but that's just my my interpretation. He winds it up with Jack, so... Yeah. yeah. He starts so, it with Jack and ends it with Jack. Yeah. 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 Book, so. And it's all kind of all yeah. over the place. David, calm down. It's, it's all right. I know, but that's um, what I didn't like about it. It was a mess. <laughs> It, I think, I think he he's do. I think the, the scene with the animals is harrowing. I think it's pretty exceptionally written. It's it. I I it was very effective for me, and from what I gathered during this conversation, it's been a, it was effective for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. It's um, brutal. Yeah. So I guess I'm gonna have to 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 rate it in two different ways, honestly. On scene or whatever it was, and the max pad scene and the. And the Dude, you know, it's yeah. not to go off on a total tangent, but I have literally never had a problem buying tampons for any of my partners my entire life. It's never been an issue for me. I'll buy them for a stranger. I don't. So, care. so, so the fact that there existed a time where that was a big deal, my my millennial brain can't comprehend it. Yeah. Right. So, so, um, <laughs> if you, as a as a PKD book, I'm gonna have to give it a. I'm gonna have to give it one duck out of five. Wow, one. Ooh. I I I really think that he's trying too hard. That is book. your lowest so far. So That's not lowest. true. Cosmic puppets. Give it two. I gave cosmic puppets two. Yeah, David, give it three. Oh, okay. Sorry, guys. No, I'm gonna have to reevaluate. I went back down. I went down. I'll give two. cosmic puppets two. I'm gonna have to give this one. Two and a half out of five, then, because oh, yeah. nothing is worse than cosmic. Great average. <laughs> um, nothing is worse than cosmic. Nothing is worse than cosmic. Okay, I'm gonna skip that one in my list then. <laughs> oh, have you I've not read, read it yet? I've never read Cosmic Puppets. You're good. You're good. Yeah, I, I think you will like the pastoral beginning. Yeah, I mean, there's some good stuff really in there, good. but there's also some super cringe, frustrating yeah. stuff in there. Terrible. Terrible. Hey, and I gotta say, I think our episode about it is great. <laughs> and as really a, didn't like it. <laughs> as a, but, as a, as its own. Hold on, David. As its own literary novel, like as just a, it's, it's a book on its own. Let's let's throw out all this the stuff we know about PKD and sci-fi. It's about a three three out of five ducks. Yeah. Because yeah. it's it's standard. It's what I would expect from a novel that's like this. It it reminds me a lot of I don't know if you guys have seen that movie and I know it was based off a book from roughly the same time period, but Revolutionary Road. Yeah. 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 So so and that that those types of stories just really aren't for me anymore. I'm 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 kind of done with them. So, but I want to know which when were they and what books do you do you consider good versions of this type of story? 
Oh, that's a great question that I don't have an answer for right off the bat. <laughs> All right. Well, it's fine. Yeah, I really don't. I'm not off the top of my head. I'm uh, the kind of first, well, right on this one. Too. Actually, I think probably my favorite is Flannery O'Connor's uh, Wise Blood. Hmm. Okay. If, if we're like going, if, if, if we're going, if we're going like straight up liter, what I would consider literary fiction, that's probably my favorite. I love uh, Wise Blood. I would go with Confederacy of Dunstans, but oh, I love that book. Yeah, it's a great book. Oh, uh, God, there's such a similarity to Isidore. Yeah, <laughs> to Jack in this book. Wow. Well, yeah, you didn't draw that Jason's connection. Mind. Uh, wow. Jason, on that note, Jason, what what's your final uh, judgment? Um, on- yeah, so kind of like Anthony, I kind of think of this maybe in three ways. One is uh, how this fits in with Dick's larger catalog. Second is how this fits in with his other mainstream non-sci-fi novels, and the third, just like my overall kind of enjoyment of it. Um, this is clearly an inferior book versus his other books. The whole time I was just clamoring for more science fiction elements. <laughs> and I, you know, and I think he easily could have added that with the UFO cult or even with just like little small bits on the edge to around psychic powers or something. Even if it had just been added just a tiny bit of, I don't know, psychic ability from Kay as a kind of black widow or something. So, I don't know. I'm just I, here. I have, I have a theory on this book that, like and precogs. There's a there's a a part. Uh, I it's like chapter twenty two, when Jack is talking about the cult and all that stuff and owning the house. I think with a little restru- restructuring, that it that could have been the end of the book, and we would not know if the end of the world was coming. But he could hint that much much stronger that that it is coming. And sort of that would be the sci-fi element that like maybe there's some, like you say, some real psychic connection that happens. And we know maybe like, a you know, Lady and the Tiger sort of ending where where the end of the world is much uh, more likely instead of knowing for a fact that it doesn't matter. I and I think to use one of his contemporaries, like I can imagine someone like Vonnegut doing that. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. of his novels, just leaving yeah. it open. Uh, so in terms of like where this fits in with Dick's larger catalog, yeah, it's clearly like in the bottom third of all the books he wrote. <laughs> um, in terms of his other literary novels, it, it is actually, uh, from what I've read, the best. I haven't reread either Mary and the Giant or um, Puttering Her About in the Small Land, both of which I loved at the time when I read them. I don't know, have you read either of those, Larry? I have not. This is the only straight one that I've read. Okay. Uh, so from that standpoint, I think this is a superior novel in that it is actually a novel. In terms of my appreciation for it, I kind of went back and forth. I thought this was a really compelling read. I couldn't put it down. And like all Dick books, I fall into reading it and just an hour disappears in a heartbeat. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, I, aside from the fact that I almost put the book down after the Tampax scene and the first uh, first chapter was a struggle. But I actually read both of those as interesting kind of challenges, at least throwing at the reader saying, I'm going to throw some nasty shit at you. Keep up, keep going with me if you can. But, you know, I'm going to give you this gauntlet you need to go through to kind of prove your bona fides to be a reader of this book. Well, that's, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, and then the book, 
kind of just continues from there with all this kind of lack of clear description of why characters take the actions they take, which is definitely a literary device, but also felt true to life. So I'd give this book also a three and a half uh, on the uh, on the enjoyment scale. Yeah, I, yep. Okay, so we have one section left because we're skipping how we would do this as a movie because it's been done as a movie and we're going to cover that in, that. A, in a separate episode. So we just have dick-like suggestions and then our preview for Deus uh, de, de Irie and that's it. So, um, Dies, like, like 10. Yeah. Dies. Okay. And uh, Larry, do you want to start us off with dick-like suggestions? I would love to, David. That's my favorite thing is to start. Uh, let's see. Let's oh, we, Anthony, you got something this month? Do you want to go first? No, I got it. I got it. I got nothing. I have something, actually. <laughs> I prepped for this section. Nice. <laughs> All right. So uh, I want to talk about Prey which is a, a game that came out a while ago. And I'm pretty sure I haven't talked about this one yet, even though I might have. Um, it's a game where you are a, sort of an astronaut and you are sent into this, this uh, spaceship base kind of thing to figure out what happened. And that's the, it's the basic plot of, of a lot of games. Uh, you know, third-person shooter game, but the difference is that they there's this alien race that can be anything. <clears throat> they can show up as a person. They can show up as a coffee cup. You just never know what they're going to be. And it's got that, that what is reality sort of, you know, element to it. And you don't know if you're the good guy or the bad guy. And it turns out you could be either the good guy or the bad guy. Um, and you don't know what's real and what's fake. You don't know what instructions you're getting are real and what's fake. It's, and it's a lot of fun to play. So third person shooter with PKD elements all over the place. That's it. All right, um, I'll let Jason go last. Um, I have one uh, book for Dick-like suggestion this month, which is the new novel by Chuck Windig called The Book of Accidents. And uh, this is my most recent review on my blog. Uh, the Book of Accidents is starts off seeming like it's either a literary reboot of Shocker, the Wes Craven movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> or it seems like after the two prologues, yes, two prologues, um, it seems like, oh, okay, this is going to be like The Shining. And um, I thought the novel misdirected me because I thought it was going to be like a haunted house, family drama, shining type book. And then it goes bonkers with multiverses and serial killers who move between different universes and it's sort of like one. Well, kind, but no, because <laughs> then there's also 
the main the family has to deal with alternate versions of themselves or some stuff with entropy and the universe ending um, and collapsing in on itself. And it is absolutely um, a weird book where you can tell Windig is a pantser and he ended up writing a very different book than he intended to when he started it, which usually wouldn't work for me, but it worked for me here. And um, it's a very odd sci-fi horror novel and very Dickian. Sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's very good. Book of Accidents by Chuck Windig. Um, it's a 500 pager, but um, but it went pretty fast for me. So. so it's basically a double PKD. Yeah, it it doesn't. It's not PKD in size. It's definitely more. Um, if you just go by metric weight, it's more Stephen King. But it's. Um, right. You're right. <laughs> but. Yeah, so Book of Accidents by Chuck Wendig and Jason close us out on Dick Like Suggestions. Hope you don't mind my jumping in with a suggestion. I just heard the pod and I saw a movie recently that uh, I thought was a great fit for this. Uh, an older film from 1966, Seconds, directed by John Frankenheimer. Oh, great movie, yeah. Who's, uh, I don't know if you've discussed it on the pod before or not. Um, yeah. He's well known as the director of The Manchurian Candidate and the De Niro film Ronin. Yeah. Um, it's about a man who uh, gets mysterious messages um, from a friend who we thought had died. Turns out that the friend had give, been giving him messages to have him go to a rendezvous point where he would be. Uh, and it's a man who's got a kind of very boring middle class life. Um, he, he has kind of no relationship with his wife. His daughter's moved away and he's just kind of stuck in this kind of middle aged middle class ennui that a lot of people can relate to. He has this mysterious message from a friend that brings up uh, memories of past glories in his life and discovers that he has been brought to this corporation that's able to uh, do plastic surgery on him, completely change his life and put him out in a new world. Um, He then goes and experiences this new world and discovers that also doesn't make him happy. Yeah, Rock Hudson is the star of this. That's one of the beauties of the film is Hudson as this actor, as the main actor in this film, is a man who literally lived a double life. Yeah, right. Perceived as one thing, but actually was another thing. This character whose life is about basically people see me as a man who's very fixed in his life, but actually I'm very uncertain about myself, just gives this movie such a kind of edge to it. Yeah, it's a great movie. But yeah, John Frankenheimer, uh, great director. Are we ready? Yeah. In the years following World War III, a new and powerful faith has arisen from a scorched and poisoned earth, a faith that embraces the architect of worldwide devastation. The servants of wrath have deified Carlton Luftwaffel, and I know I said that wrong, and rechristened him the Deus Irae in the small community of Charlottesville, Utah. Tibor McMasters, born without arms or legs, has through an array of prostheses, pros, prostheses, I can't say that. Prostheses established a far-reaching reputation as an inspired painter. When the new church commissions a grand mural depicting the Deus Irae, it falls upon Tibor to make a treacherous journey to find the man, to find the god, and capture his terrible visage for posterity. And Dick is sharing the writing credits because this is PKD and Roger Zelazny. So um, on that note, uh, everybody keep paranoid, stay paranoid, and we will talk to you again soon with the movie of confession that's actually the next one is the movie 
of confessions. Have a crap. Yeah. Have a good, have a good, have a good uh, morning. Wherever you are. Bye.